The sermon today is taken from John 15:26 to 16:11. This is the word of God. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Thus saith the Lord. Uh, friends, let me pray for us before we uh, continue in our, in our uh, sermon today. Pray with me. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are a God that reveals your word to us, the truth of the gospel in your scripture. And Father, we also know and acknowledge that unless your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, we can never understand truly in our hearts effectively what you're trying to say. We might agree with it in our minds but our hearts will never fall in love with it. And Lord, as the Spirit moves, as we find you to graciously reveal to us your truths, affect our mind and our hearts, but also our hands and our feet, that we may go out and be witnesses of your gospel, as we see here in our text today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, a lot of new faces. Uh, if this is your first time at Covenant City Church, would like to introduce myself. My name is Tazar, uh, and uh, uh, Gray, that was leading us throughout the liturgy up here, uh, we both are elders of this church. If you have questions about CCC or want to know more about CCC, we'd love to talk to you about any questions that you might have later. So today, what we're doing is we're going to continue in our sermon series throughout the book of John. We've been going through the whole book since the beginning of this year, I think. So we've gone through John chapter 1, and now we're at John chapter 15, unto the middle of 16. Uh, and this particular part of the book of John talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. That's why you probably also noticed that our whole liturgy was focused on the Holy Spirit, particularly because we're trying to align it with the text that we're preaching that Sunday. So uh, we are in the book of John where, uh, in this, where we're in the section that's called the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is in this section of the book where Jesus is telling his disciples that he will soon leave them. Why? Because soon he's going to die on the cross for their sins. He's going to be resurrected from the death, and he will ascend, be lifted up to the Father, thus fulfilling God's redemptive plan, the gospel of our salvation. 
And in our particular part of this Pharaoh discourse, which we're studying today in this passage, which is the end of chapter 15 toward the middle and beginning of chapter 16, Jesus is telling his disciples how the world is going to respond to the gospel message. They won't like it. They're going to push back. But, he says, don't worry, because although I'm not going to be here with you present in physical bodily form, I will, however, Jesus says, send, send you my spirit, described here in verse 26 as the helper. Now, just a clarification on the role of the Holy Spirit. This is something that unfortunately has been very confused today. The picture that we get when we think about somebody who is quote-unquote touched by the Holy Spirit or quote-unquote anointed by the Holy Spirit is that they fall into this emotional ecstatic state. They kind of lose brain awareness. They babble like little babies and they fall down to the ground in euphoric excitement. Many claim that's what it means to be touched or anointed by the Holy Spirit. But that's not really the picture we see in scriptures. What picture do we see here? Verse 26. He is the spirit of what? The spirit of truth. Look, I don't mean to demean. I really don't. But I think it's gone to the point where it just needs to be addressed. Friends, if someone right now starts babbling like a little baby, gets euphoric and falls down to the ground, then they get up and they say to you, man, that was the truth. What would you say? Oh, what was the truth? What content are you telling me? Why? Because the truth, the spirit of truth, assumes that there's a particular statement or content or claim that is being made. He is a spirit, not of disorder, but of truth. Now, what truth statement does Jesus say at the end of verse 26 that this Holy Spirit will make? Read it. He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will speak of the contents of Jesus Christ and his gospel. In other words, the Holy Spirit will utter understandable and say intelligible truth claims about the gospel. Now, I'm going to go ahead and extend the introduction more than usual. I'm sorry, but I think it's necessary. If you read Acts chapter 2, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's clear that even in the miraculous gift of tongues, it has never been baby babble. It's always been intelligible proclamations of gospel truths. Now, yes, miraculously so at that particular day and age, where the speaker might, through the power and the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, pronounce the gospel in a human language that they did not previously know of. But... When the extraordinary gift occurs, there's always an interpreter that will make this intelligible proclamation of gospel truth in a foreign language understandable to the people around. Let's read 1 Corinthians 14, 9-11, referring to the gift of tongues. So with yourselves, Paul says, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. It will be intelligible proclamations in a foreign language that you might not know. So Gray here, all of a sudden, will speak the gospel truth in Swahili, assuming you don't know Swahili. 
and somebody will interpret it. This is Jesus. This is the cross. This is the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 and verses 6 to 8. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all there together, Jesus' disciples, in one place. And they were all, what, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. What are these other tongues? And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own, what? Language. And they're amazed and astonished. Look at all these cultures. Are not these people who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? It has never been about baby babble. Okay? Now, the work of the Spirit thus emphasizing how the gospel of Jesus Christ unites all cultures... Reversing the separation curse of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember when God confused us with human languages as a curse? He's reversing that. He's fulfilling the great commission that Jesus says in Matthew 28, make disciples of all cultures in the world. And he's preparing the way to the picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 7, where all tribes, all tongues, all nations will gather together and worship the Lord. It is never baby babble. Now, How does God the Spirit witness to the world this intelligible gospel proclamation? Not by writing it up on the sky, but through Jesus' disciples. Where do we see that? Verses 26 and 27. Jesus says at the end of verse 26, The Spirit will bear witness about me. And then immediately, he says in the beginning of verse 27, You also will bear witness. What is he saying there? In other words, he's saying that the Holy Spirit's main method of bearing witness, this intelligible gospel truth in human language, is through who? Jesus' disciples. The Spirit will bear witness. You also will bear witness. This is the mark of someone who has a Holy Spirit of truth in them. Not that they will baby talk, but they will proclaim the intelligible message of the gospel that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life who has died for your sins to bring you unto the Father. And when you're led by the Holy Spirit to do that, you know what will happen? You won't get a lot of money. You won't be healed from all your earthly diseases. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. What will happen? You'll get kicked out of the synagogues. And some might even want to end your life. Now, some of us might be thinking, I chose the wrong Sunday to go to church. Or the wrong church to go to this Sunday, (laughs) either one. I need a positive message, right? I need something uplifting. Come on. It'll come. Don't worry, it'll come. Jesus, in this passage, does offer his disciples higher eternal heavenly joys, but not without first putting to death our addiction to the lesser joys that this world often offers. Let's get to it. Three points. One, the reason why the Spirit leads us into a hostile world. Two, the way the Spirit strengthens us in a hostile world. And three, the Spirit's drive in us to love a hostile world. Point number one, the reason why the Spirit leads us into a hostile world. So, what we see here in verses 26 and 27 is that the Holy Spirit, as we've already mentioned in our liturgy today, 
has a particular role in the Trinitarian redemptive plan. God the Father has authored this redemption plan of, cro- of the cross throughout the Old Testament. We've seen that in John chapter 15. He's the author of it. God the Son accomplished this redemption plan for us by dying on the cross for us. And then God the Spirit is being sent by the Father and the Son to apply this redemption plan in our hearts and causes us to share it with others. There's a unity here in this work. Now, Jesus also says here that when we do this, when we are strengthened by the Spirit to share with the world, there's going to be pushback. So much so, verse 27 says, it's going to tempt us, our, his disciples, to fall away. It's going to tempt us to fall away. But this is interesting, isn't it? Fall away from what? We've made it clear, Jesus has made it clear already throughout the book of John, and the rest of Scripture makes it clear, that we can never fall away from our salvation. You can't lose something you didn't earn. It was a gift given to you by grace. Let's read a few verses in that Jesus mentioned you cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, what? I will never cast out. You can't lose it. Another one, John chapter 10, verse 20 and 29. I give them eternal life. Not they earn it. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, you see. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Your salvation cannot be lost. That is secure in the gospel by grace eternally. So then, what is it that we can fall away from? Not our salvation but from our mission to preach the truth of the gospel because the consequences of it, the pushback from the world can get pretty loud. This means, friends, don't worry, the world and all the powers of hell cannot rob you from your salvation. They can't. But beware, they can rob you from the joy and intimacy you could have had experience with Christ if you continued in his mission and partake in his sufferings for the gospel. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There is a level of intimacy with Christ and a level of knowing Christ that will be affected by how far you go with him in his mission and how much of his sufferings you partake in. Now, let me clarify. This is not legalism. I'm not saying that if you obey, you'll be loved more. No, no, no. I'm not saying that your victory and your salvation at the end is dependent upon how much you obey him or join him in his mission. No, no, no. Your victory and salvation is solidified in Christ. But that does not mean that every Christian knows Christ with equal intimacy. This will highly depend on how far they're willing to suffer with him. Let me offer this up for an example. Hope this helps. I recently saw a TV show where a family, particularly a husband and a wife, was wrongfully accused. And they're put on trial. Now, this trial was very hard and very long. The whole world was against them. Opposition had more money. They had better lawyers. They had more legal power. And this family received threats from the courtroom, even uh, in and outside of the courtroom. And it didn't seem like they were going to win. And at some point of the trial, the father couldn't take it. The father left midway, he quit, he fell away, see, he left the case, and he separated himself from his wife, who continued to persevere in the trial. So the husband left, the wife continued, but luckily, the wife's sister helped her 
She didn't fall away. She continued to share in her sufferings. She shared the financial burden. She shared the shame. She invested the time to see this trial till the end. And after years and years, unlikely as it was, the mom finally won the trial. She received justice, and her family's name and honor was vindicated. Now here's the question. Did her husband partake in this victory as well? Of course he did. His family's name was also vindicated, right? He legally won the case, thanks to the effort of his wife. He legally received compensation at the end. He legally, at the end, ended up victorious. However, you know what the husband did not get to experience? You know what he did miss out on? On the growth of intimacy that her wife experienced with her sister throughout this grueling trial. During the trial, the wife and the sister grew so much in their intimacy because they suffered the same sufferings in the way that the husband did not experience. The whole family benefited from the wife's victory. But yet certain family members did experience a level of intimacy with the wife that the husband did not experience because they stuck through it with her. And he did not. This is not legalism. Legalism would say the dad was cut off from victory. Legalism would say the dad is not allowed to enjoy the victory because he fell away. No, 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 no. He was still a part of the victory. Jesus died for your sins. You're victorious. He still won. Jesus is abundantly clear that because of his gracious death on the cross, his victory is won. And if you've trusted and rested in that gospel, your eternal salvation is secure. You'll never fall away from it. That's an objective truth that will remain true no matter how you feel. But you know what you might fall away from? Verse 2 says, from the joy and intimacy you could have had with Jesus because you did not stick it out. Because you refused to share in his sufferings. See, a civilian might enjoy the benefits of victory that his country's military commander achieved. He'll enjoy the victory, but he will never enjoy the level of communion and unity that this commander will have with one of his soldiers who shared in his mission and in his sufferings on the front lines. You want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit that pushes you towards an intimacy with Jesus that is beyond what you currently know? He'll do it. But he won't do it by throwing you into a euphoric baby talk. He won't do it by adding cool lights and smoke machines in your Sunday morning worship service. He won't do it by uh, giving you into a state of earthly wealth and riches. He'll do it by throwing you into the mission of Jesus, of intelligibly sharing his gospel to a world that is hostile toward it and have you share in his sufferings with him. That's how the Holy Spirit grows you in intimacy with Jesus. And look at verse 2. The world, friends, they will come pushing back. If you listen to the Spirit and join in Jesus' mission, they'll kick you out of the synagogues, he tells his disciples. And back then, to get kicked out of the synagogues is like having a criminal record in your social status. Makes everything hard. Makes finding a job and careers hard. Makes being accepted into your community hard. You're practically a social outcast. Your own family might shun you. Jesus surely was by his earthly brothers and earthly parents for a time. 
But some people will go even beyond that verse 2 says. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Now, why would the world be so upset? Why does this gospel affect people in this way? Well, take a look carefully at who it is that's persecuting Jesus' disciples. The people persecuting Jesus' disciples was not atheists. They were not non-religious people who don't believe in God. They were who? They were religious people who do believe in God. They were kicked out of the synagogues. The synagogues was a place of worship. The synagogues was filled with the most religious people back then. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to who? To God. These were religious people. Now, this might confuse us. You might think, why would the gospel offend religious people in this way? Doesn't Christianity promote religious morality just like any other religion? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. The gospel actually rips the whole foundations out from under the religious moralists. Because religious moralists think that their obedience can somehow earn favor to God. Their obedience can somehow earn their salvation. The gospel says, no, it can't. You can't. The cross, the death of Christ for our sins, that is the only way, the truth, and life. No one gets the Father but through him. See, religious morality says we can get to God. The gospel says, no, you can't. That's why he came down to us. See, the gospel might offend non-religious, secular atheists, maybe, because if someone doesn't care that they're living in sin, and you say, hey, man, you're not living God's standards, they might get annoyed. But it'll absolutely outrage the religious moralists because they've been trying their whole lives to obey God, to earn his favor. And here you come, led by the Holy Spirit of Christ, with the gospel of truth, saying what? You'll never meet it. No matter how hard you try, you will never reach God's standards. To hear someone say, I know you've been trying your whole life. I know you've allocated certain hours of the day to pray. I know you've spent a lot of money to visit these shrines and go on these pilgrimages. I know you've been absolutely rigorous in obeying your spiritual leaders your whole lives. I know you've gone to temple and paid your dues your whole lives. I know you've gone to church and pay tithes your whole lives. I know you've raised your children well your whole lives. I know you've recycled and ate local organic foods your whole life. I know you've been sympathetic to the marginalized and given dignity to everyone you've met with your words and with your actions, but friends, you have not come close to the holiness of God. You've failed. I've failed. Everyone's failed. Of course they're not going to like hearing that. Of course they'll push back. You and I would too unless the Holy Spirit, by his gracious work, reveals the gospel and makes it real in our hearts. This is what Jesus is saying. We, can't, we won't be able to handle it. We need aid. We need help from above. You need me to send you the Holy Spirit to help you persevere through all this and not fall away from the roars that this world will howl toward the gospel. So, how does he do that? How does he help us... Um, persevere in this gospel mission that the world wants nothing to do with and encourage us to not fall away for the sake of our joy in him and for his glory through us. Second point, the way the Spirit strengthens us in a hostile world. What we see in this passage today, he does it through two ways. One, 
by reminding us that this pushback we experience from the world is not beyond God's will, and two, by reminding us that the vindication or the victory that Christ experienced at the end of this time of sufferings is real, and it will be ours as well. One, reminding us what, what you're experiencing, this pushback, is not beyond God's will, and two, at the end, Christ was victorious, so shall you be also. One, first, he reminds us that this pushback, uh, this, this persecution from the world is not beyond God's will. See, yes, this hostility that we might experience by preaching the gospel is hard enough to endure, but it will be unbearable if we think that the hostility we experience is outside of God's will. It'll be unbearable. Jesus here is assuring the disciples that it's not outside of God's will. Where? Verse 4. I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, he's predicted it, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So verse 4, Jesus starts by saying, I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, the hour throughout the book of John always refers to the moment where Jesus Christ will die on the cross for our sins, resurrected, and ascend to the Father. That's the hour. That's the time. That's the moment. So Jesus is saying now, so far, they have not yet come to you, he's telling his disciples here. Why? Because so far, I've still been with you, he says at the end of verse 4. But when the hour comes, when I die for your sins, when I'm resurrected, and when I ascend to the Father, when I'm no longer here with you, you must remember that the world, who would turn its gospel-hating attention away from me, who is no longer here, and to you, who are still here. It'll come when I leave. Now he asks, how is this supposed to be encouraging his disciples, or encourage us, you might ask, because it tells us that the hostility his disciples, you and I, by preaching the gospel, will endure for the gospel is not something that's out of God's control. It did not catch God off guard. He knows this hour is coming. He's been anticipating it. He's not surprised by it. He is sovereign over it, John even says later. Now, how does this comfort us? Because, friends, this means, think about it. It means the hot fire this world might present before you as a response to your gospel witness to it, it's not as wild and free to roam as it might seem to be at first. It's controlled. It's under God's sovereign, kind, and gracious hand. He has full reign over it. He's controlling every single part of it. He will not let it devour you, but merely use it to refine you, further you into his image. The, the hymn we sang earlier, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross, thy sin to consume, and thy gold to refine. So don't fall away. Don't shy away. He knows it's coming. Your God knows it's coming. Stay faithful. This is all within his sovereign control and will. Continue to love this gospel um, a rejecting world and stay faithful to the gospel message. For even the hottest flames are under God's gentle, sovereign hand, you see. But second, the Holy Spirit will also strengthen us and keep us going by reminding us of the vindication and the victory that Jesus experienced at the end. Where do we see that? Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, that I die, resurrect, and go to the Father. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, when you read this verse, we always think about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the focus, right? He goes away, the Holy Spirit comes. And that's not wrong. We'll get to that in a bit. But let's not miss a huge part here. 
of Jesus going away, the ascension of Jesus Christ. What does the ascension of Jesus Christ is going away, what does that represent? That represents victory. That represents vindication. That the world has done its worst. The world has kicked him out of the synagogues. The world has killed him in the worst and most humiliating manner on the cross. But yet at the end, he resurrected and he ascended to the Father. He was victorious. He was vindicated. Have you ever been sinned against pretty badly? And the person that committed that sin or that offense to you has not yet been brought to the light. And the wrong that was done to you has not yet been made right. And the wound that remains from that wrong has not yet been dealt with. Have you experienced that? Are you in it right now? To be vindicated means everything overlooked, the offenses that were unseen, is finally being brought to the light. Justice is served. The wrong is finally made right. And thus, the wounds you have from that wrong will finally receive the proper ointment it deserves. The whole world might misunderstand you. They'll call you angry and mean and self-righteous. They did Jesus. The whole world might mock you. They did Jesus. The world might wound you. They did Jesus. The world might wrongly accuse you like they did Jesus, even perhaps kill you like they did Jesus, Jesus is saying here in verse 2. But have you forgotten? The Holy Spirit reminds us. Have you forgotten his ascension? Have you forgotten the vindication that he received? All the wrongs that was done to him, every word of shame thrown his way, every drop of blood that fell to the ground, every financial loss experienced, every relationship made awkward, every career advancement jeopardized, every family member that scoffs at you. Every time you are kept at arm's length by this culture, it will be vindicated. Do you not see Jesus and his vindication? So it is much better for you, Jesus says, that I send and leave you. Because that means you have proof now. You have proof that my cross was not a sign of defeat, but a sign of victory. You have proof that my victory awaits you as well. And that my victory is won. And the Holy Spirit will come, Jesus says, and he'll remind all of this to you. I can't do that in my physical body form. All I can do is speak this gospel assurance into your ears. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will dig deep into your hearts because he will plant this assurance of victory in the gospel in your heart as he resides in it. So rejoice. Rejoice that I'm leaving. That means I've won, Jesus in our passage here is saying. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't let the fear of man cause you to not witness my gospel. Because no persecution you experience will catch God off guard, you see. None of it is outside of his will. God will, through it, one, cause you to know him in a much deeper and intimate level as you share in the sufferings of Christ. And two, vindicate you at the end from all of this, as he did with the resurrection of Christ. Christian, don't fall away. Keep strong in your mission. You've got to love this world with more than just 
general politeness. You're not called just to be polite. Be spirit-led. Love this world enough to witness unto them the truth that will set them free. Love them enough to do that. Because the same love that Jesus has for this world through his spirit also resides in you, which is our last point. The Spirit's drive in us to love a hostile world. Where do we see that? Look at the Spirit's work described again by Jesus in verses 8 to 9. When the Spirit comes, what will he do? When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning, convict the world concerning sin because we don't live up to something. We, we fall short of something. Don't live up to what? Righteousness. God's righteous standards. We sin because we don't live up to God's righteous standards, no matter how hard we try. And because of that, we're all liable for what? Judgment. By the way, briefly, let me sidetrack here. You don't have to be Christian to admit those three things. Every time anyone asks for forgiveness, anytime you've said the words, I'm sorry, whether you're a Christian or not, think about what you're saying. One, you're admitting you've done something wrong. In other words, sin. Two, that there is an objective standard of good, in other words, righteousness, that you should have lived up to, but you failed to live up to it. Sin, righteousness. And three, there's a consequence. That's why you're asking for forgiveness. In other words, you're admitting that judgment must somehow be made. See, everyone admits to sin and a standard of righteousness and the consequences of not fulfilling. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. The second you say, I'm sorry, you're doing that. Every time your wounded conscience apologizes, you're admitting to that. What the Holy Spirit does is not convince you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Anyone who's ever apologized knows those things to be reality. What he does is he makes you realize the source of the subjective standard is God. And that the one you need to ultimately apologize to is him. To you and to you alone I have sinned, David said in the Psalms. And ultimately to point you to the love of Christ on the cross through it all, that he has died for your sins, given you his righteousness, paid the judgment that you and I deserve. Now, notice these three things that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of are the same things that Jesus already did in his earthly ministry. Did not Jesus rebuke us of our sin in Matthew chapter 5? You hate your brother in your heart, that's murder. Was not Jesus that revealed God's righteous standards? If, you, if your standards don't meet the Pharisees, you failed. Was it not Jesus that proclaimed judgment? John 9, for judgment I've come to the world. See, what Jesus and the Holy Spirit is doing here is one work. It's the same work, revealing to you a truth that your hearts already know to be true. Every time you apologize, by pointing you to God and to the cross through it all. Now the question is, why did Jesus rebuke the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Why did he do that? Just because he enjoys being hated? Just because he enjoys being persecuted? Just because he enjoys making people angry for the sake of making people angry? No. Because he loved them. He loved the world enough to point them to his cross where he took upon himself the consequences of their sin, where he made sinners righteous, through his blood, and where he bore the judgment that we deserve. He convicts the world because he loves the world. For the heart that does not know the depths of its sin is a heart that does not know or see their need for the cross. 
Friends, this is why also the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. To lift up the cross. Because he loves the world and points them to Christ. This is why we also do it, friends. Because the same love that Christ had for the world has penetrated so deeply in your hearts by the Spirit that he continues to work the work of Christ through us. Are you fulfilling this love? Or are you falling away from it? Are you being led, Christian, if you proclaim to be in Christ by the Holy Spirit? Or are you reverting back to generic niceties and not sharing the gospel because of the threats of this world seem too loud to you? Are you following through with your mission? Are you braving through, as empowered by the Spirit, the hostility of this world toward the gospel? This is the whole point that Jesus is trying to tell us in this part of the farewell discourse. Do not fall away. Keep witnessing my gospel love to the world. It's costly to love them, I know. But it was costly for me to love you too, by the way. Your own families might not like you for it. Your own families might misunderstand. Because you are to reveal to the world and to them truths about sin and righteousness and judgment. They're trying to suppress that. But love them anyways. Still, keep going, regardless of the cost, because, because, the more costly the battlefield may prove to be, the more united and intimate it will not you with Christ as you share in his sufferings. The hotter the world turns up its fire, the more God will use it to refine you into his likeness. The more shameful the mockeries this world throws your way, the sweeter your final vindication will become. When all misunderstandings and all the wrong accusations are finally brought to the light. Don't you see? Every single move this world makes, it cannot win. The sovereign God has had his hand on checkmate this whole time. On every possible turn, he's won. He's defeated death itself. So stop trying to appease the world and start loving it. Love the world. For the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for you and for me. Even when it's costly to do so. That's what it means to be spirit-led. Not that you'll fall down to euphoric babbles. But you'll be sent forth as intelligible witnesses of his gospel. To be led by the Spirit doesn't mean you're going to be thrown into a pot of gold, but into a world that is hostile to his gospel message. You won't be thrown to earthly pleasures, but into a deep, intimate experience and knowledge of Christ as you partake in his sufferings. And the Spirit could care less about your current social status. But he cannot be more excited to see the joy in your face when your honor is finally restored at the end of the day as Jesus looks you in the eye and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what he's pushing you toward. Let him lead you there. Don't suppress the joys of the gospel. Proclaim it, Christian. Proclaim it. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Let's pray. 
Father, as your disciples said in the book of Acts, how can we not share about the things that we have seen and heard? How can we stop? Father, your gospel is too great. And this world is in too much need of it for us to cower away, for us to not share it. Yes, we should do so lovingly and gently and sensitively. I might have failed to do that in my sermon. (laughs) But Father, help us do that kindly, wisely to this world that needs it. That your redemptive plan on the cross has been fulfilled. And that on the cross, you love the world so much, you gave, you gave. Let us do the same because we're led by the same spirit. And Father, encourage and remind our hearts that the vindication you experience will also be your people's vindication and victory. And that whatever heat this world turns up will only cause into us an intimacy and a unity that a soldier can only experience with his commander in battle. And that if we are to know you in the way Paul said he did, in your sufferings, Father, encourage us to not cower away. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that a God, holy and righteous, whom we have offended, would love us, your enemies, so much that you came and died for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.